All right, good morning, church. How we doing? Great. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, Clay. I love that. Um, we're going to be in Ezra chapter 9 and 10 this morning, so we're going to be finishing uh, the book of Ezra today. It's a tall task, and so turn there as quickly as you can because we're just going to get moving straight into the scriptures this morning. So as uh, you turn there, I want to go ahead and pray for us that we can be able to receive the word of the Lord this morning. And you can turn while you're praying. It's okay. All right. Lord, be with us. Lord, as we come to a hard passage of Scripture, so many years removed, it's hard to understand uh, the context sometimes. And so would you be with us this morning uh, by your Spirit to be able to teach us what was happening in that moment uh, in time with your people and then also what that moment was leading to. That moment was leading to your Son coming to be able to fulfill a covenant that we could not. And so, Lord, we're here this morning, uh, this side of the of your grace, this side of your goodness, uh, help us to understand other moments in redemptive history this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so Ezra 9, let's jump straight in to the word this morning. So after these things had, done, had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. And from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amazites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hands of the officials and chief men have been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I arose from my fasting, with my garment my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees, and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt is mounted up to the heavens." From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and on our iniquities uh, are on us. We, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is to today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant, and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving, reviving in our slavery." For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia, to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O Lord our God, what shall we say for after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servant the prophet, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from the end, from end to end with their uncleanliness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat of the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandment again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? 
Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there would be no remnant nor any escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand because of this. This is the word of the Lord. As we go on into, I'm going to summarize chapter 10. So we see here, there's a problem as arose. Ezra has taught the law to the people, and in having the law being taught to them, the law does its work. And one of the main works of the law of the Lord is to reveal our sin. And so the officials and the people of the land realize, oh no, <laughs> we've, we've done it again, <laughs> you know? We, we've broken the covenant yet again and sinned against God in this way by marrying the foreign women of the land. Now, the real problem isn't just the, the foreign women, it's what comes with them. What comes with them is their gods, their idols, their practices, and their intermingling with the people of God and bringing them into unfaithfulness, a syncretism that is dangerous to losing and preserving the faith. And really there it says in chapter, or verse two, it says holy race, and really a better translation would be holy seed. It's about preserving a spiritual people of God that would look different from the world, a people of God who would follow after him and show the goodness and faithfulness of God to all the lands around them, but they can't do that if they're allowing the people of the land to come with their gods and their practices and abominations and to pull them away from the Lord, to intermingle in such a way that they're not unique that they don't show the love of God and that they act just like everybody else. So this is a big deal. And so when the people hear this and they see Ezra in chapter 10, they see him weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. And the people realize, oh no, we, we have sinned. So what are we gonna do about our sin? What are we gonna do about this problem? And God's just saved this remnant, brought us back to the land, and here we find ourselves again in the same place Israel's been again and again in history, which is putting other gods before the one true God. That they're going after the ways of the world instead of pursuing God and his ways, being a unique people, showing the love of God in the world. Here they are yet again, so what do they decide to do? Some of the chief people decide that, hey, there's still hope. Maybe we should deal with our sin and make the hard choice here to put away our foreign wives and the children that have been born to them that we might seek the purity of our people, that we might seek the purity of our faith. And this is a hard decision and shows us that when we're in sin, even when we repent, even when we confess, there's still consequences to our sin that have to be dealt with. And these consequences are of the highest order, Right? where families are gonna to have to be torn apart, and this is a hard passage to hear. It's important to note, though, in Ezra 10, that it's the people who decide, it's the community who decide to make this decision to put away the four wives and the children. Uh, they, they seek to honor God, to turn from their sin. If this is the sin we committed, now we're gonna to turn to God in faithfulness and, and deal with our sin and deal with the consequences thereof. And that's hard for us to hear today in our day and age. But they go and they do this. Ezra sets it before the people that they're going to do this. They join in it and it takes three months for it to be carried out because it's so widespread. It's so widespread, even the chief leaders are the most foremost in the sin. And so we see that they eventually put them away and the book of Ezra seems to really end on a very sad downer, right? It just ends with, and all these people who married the former women and some of their children have been born to them. And that's the end of the book. 
But luckily, as we know, that's not the end of the story, and we'll see that today. So I think there's some things we need to talk about really quick up front, uh, because this is a hard passage. I think as we're looking at this, we've got to realize uh, this is a different time under the redemptive history of God, right? We're in the new covenant, and we know that he's a God of love and a God of grace and all this, and the same is true in the Old Testament, yet where they find themselves right now, the promise has not been fulfilled, the promise of Abraham who would come and bless all the nations has not happened at this point and God has now given them their law and the law is exposing their need for the promise. The law is exposing them as sinners that they can't live up to God's holy standards and that they can't keep this covenant and that they desperately need someone to come and keep this covenant for them. And so as we look at this, we've got to remember that these people are still under the law, and this is the way they are trying to appeal to God. But it's interesting because Ezra doesn't appeal to the law. He throws himself on the mercy and steadfast love of the Lord in his confession. So they're under the law at this time, waiting for the promised one to be revealed to uphold their side of the covenant. Next, you know, God does not love divorce yet. For our sin, he allows it. Matthew 19, 7 through 8 will be on the screen. They said to him, this is to Jesus, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, or you could say because of our sinfulness, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but it was not so from the beginning. So this is not God's plan for us and for our marriages that we have broken relationships. That's not the way it was in the beginning. The Bible begins with a marriage, right? Right? And we see Adam and Eve in the garden and they're together and God has brought them together and he's in this covenant relationship with them in their marriage and it's all good until it's not. And then sin enters the world and brokenness enters the world and brokenness affects our relationships. And so God allows divorce because of our sinfulness and hardness of hearts and the brokenness of relationships aside of heaven. But that does not mean that that's the way it's supposed to be. Then we see that here they put away the foreign wives and children, and this is really hard to hear. But yet we know that God cares for women and children. This is true. I mean, look at Jesus. When he comes, he says, let the little children come unto me. You know, when the disciples are trying to shoo him away and say, Jesus doesn't have time for you, you know, (laughs) stay back. He says, no, let the children come unto me. Jesus values children. God loves his children. And then we also know that God loves women. Jesus elevates women in the Bible. In the book of John, the first person he reveals himself to be the Messiah is a Samaritan woman at the well. We also know that Jesus had many women who ministered with him and the apostles, a lot of them providing for them and caring for them. And so we know that what's happening here is not because God doesn't care about women and children or God doesn't care about marriage or he doesn't care about where they're at. That's how appalling this sin is. It's not about the foreign wives that they've brought in and just who they are themselves, but it's about the gods that they bring with them, the gods that they worship, and then it's bringing the people to break the first commandment. What's the first commandment? You can interact with me if you want to at this point. You should have no other gods before me. So here they come, and if they're mixing with the people's lands and their gods and their practices, there's other gods becoming before God, and then the women are also teaching the children, and it's a syncretism, right? A mixing of their faith and this faith, and this melding together into an unpure faith to where if, it, if it, this went on for generations and they didn't address it, there would be no faith. We wouldn't have the faith that we have now if they didn't make these hard decisions then. 
So we're going to see five things in this passage uh, today, uh, these two chapters that I want to bring out. And first, we're already touching on some of it. Uh, Why is this a big deal to God and a problem for God's people? Why is this a big deal to God and a problem for God's people? Well, I mentioned it just a second ago. Uh, One of the greatest themes of Scripture is that I will be your God and you will be my people. We see this over and over in Scripture. Not only that, but God uses imagery of him being their husband and that the people of God are his bride. And we see this marriage relationship uh, time and time again in Scripture. Like I said earlier, uh, the Bible begins with a marriage, and then if we skip to Revelation, it ends with a marriage banquet. And all the way in between, God is calling his people to purity to seek after him and him alone, to seek after him and his ways. And time and time again, the people fail to do so. And so it's a, it's a breaking of a relationship, a breaking of the covenant on the part of the people. I mean, there's a whole book of the Bible, Hosea. The whole book is about this prophet Hosea who is going to marry Gomer, awesome wife name, right? That's who you're looking to marry, a Gomer. Uh, that's tough. He, he should have known right off the bat it was going to be a hard situation. All right, Gomer, gotcha. All right, so he's going to marry Gomer, and then Gomer's going to be unfaithful to him time and time again, and the Lord calls him time and time again to go redeem her, to go pay for her, to go bring her back, and the whole book is a picture of how God interacts with his people. We are a unfaithful people. We are rebellious in nature, and we've brought in spiritual adultery into our relationship with our God. That's why this is a big deal. I mean, look at Ezra's response is that he rips out his hair and his beard hair. If I had some hair, I mean, I'd do it, but like, I do have a beard, but I don't want to pull that out. And that's hard. That's tough. That's how it's said that he set appalled at this sin. It's a big deal to God because it is a breaking of covenant faithfulness. And again, what I said was it says there that he's trying to preserve the holy race. A better translation would be the holy seed. Well, what's this holy seed that we're trying to preserve? Well, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. We see the root and the seed of hope in the gospel right there. It says there, there will be a seed of the woman who comes and crushes the head of the serpent forever. This Paul says in Romans 16, 19, and 20, is Jesus Christ. So this hope of this one who would rise up, this one who would restore relationship with God for us, for all peoples who would believe in him, this is the seed that we're trying to preserve and trying to get to. And so if they don't keep the law, then there can't be one who's born of a virgin who's born under the law to redeem us. There wouldn't even be a faith within a few generations if they didn't deal with this sin and its seriousness. And I think the same is true for us today, right? There's a lot of things that are trying to seep into the church and into our faith that might distract us from God, that might take away our focus from Him being our top priority, the gospel, that we're preserving it, that we're keeping it, that we're passing it along to other generations so our faith might Continues. So many things are challenging us today to just mix a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of this, and that's okay, and it's not. And the thing is, we've become so comfortable with it, we're not even appalled by it. We welcome it. And I think we can all think about what those different things are and the challenges in our life that seep in and try to bring us into spiritual idolatry with God, try to lose the purity of the gospel and go after other gods. So we see that they've specifically violated, and Ezra refers to it at the end of chapter 9 there, a specific law, and we'll see it on the screen in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4. This is what the law that they've broken. 
when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you were to enter and to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevatites, the Jebusites, and seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters and your sons to them. Uh, for they will turn you away, turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of your Lord will be quickly kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. God's a jealous God. God's a God who desires us to be committed to him, who wants us to come after him and to know him and to experience him, that we might be saved that we might walk in his ways and the way he's designed us to that aren't barriers to our freedom, but that will actually bring us freedom and life. But yet we want to go outside the borders that God set for us because we think life can be found outside of him. We think life can be found outside relationship with God, and it can't. And so this is such a big deal because look back at verse 4 of Deuteronomy 7. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, it says that if you allow your sons to have these daughters to be married, they will have them not follow after me. So that's the big sin that's in here is the bringing of other gods that would draw people away from God and have um, break the covenant, be spiritual adulterers. So this is what happens in our unfaithfulness to God and then there's sin and there's consequences. But I think it's also important to note that Ezra in here, it's upon the reading of the law that the people really understand that they sinned. You know, Paul says in Romans 7 that I didn't know what covetousness was until the, until the law showed me what it was, and then I couldn't stop doing it. Because this is what the law does. The law presses in and reveals our sinfulness, but the law also can't produce what it demands. If we just double down, I'm going to double down on this, and I'm going to keep this, and I'm going to make it happen, we might be able to do it a little while if you're a pretty disciplined person, but eventually you're not going to be able to do it. The law presses in in such a way it exposes our sinfulness. It exposes that we can't live the way that God wants us to. And it leaves us in a place where Paul does at the end of Romans 7 where he cries out, Who will deliver me from this body of death? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a big deal. Uh, And this is, I think, another reason that we need to be in the Word consistently. If we're not in God's Word consistently and we're not asking Him to reveal sin in our life, guess what's not going to happen in our life? Sin being revealed. We're not. We're not going to know it. We're just going to go about our days, and all of a sudden we start mixing in the gospel and other things. And before we look up, we're like, oh no, I'm unfaithful again. I've done it yet again. And a lot of times that happens because we're not in God's word. We're not allowing it to really read us. Have you ever experienced that with scripture? Where you're reading it, but really it's reading you, and it's reading your heart and exposing it for what it is, but then it draws you to repentance because the Lord's kindness, Romans 2, 4 says, leads us to repentance. So we need to be in God's word and we need to ask him, where do I need your word to shine light on my sinfulness and my unfaithfulness to you? Next, we see that Ezra intercedes for the people and that it's necessary that God's people have an intermediary between them and God Someone who stands in as a representative for the people. That's what Ezra does. He stands in for the people. And and if you notice his confession that we read in chapter 9, he identifies with the people. Yet Ezra hasn't committed this sin. But yet as a representative of the people, he says, you know, not, hey, these people that I came back to teach your law and do all this stuff have messed up, God. Aren't they horrible people? (laughs) But no, he identifies so much with the people and says, we've sinned. 
So much so that it's reaching the heavens and I can't even look up at you. So if you're taking notes, I think there are a few questions we've got to ask about Ezra's mediation for the people here. He sets shock and appalled by sin, and he's mourning their sin and pulling out beard hair and actual hair. And the reason is, is the sin is so appalling. And I think when we look at the scripture, our first reaction isn't that the sin's so appalling, but the consequences of the sin are so appalling. But what's appalling to Ezra is the sins of the people and that he would go before God and say, help us, we've broken covenant again, but you've been so faithful to us even in the midst of our sinfulness though we don't deserve it. So I think we've gotta ask a personal question, does our sin appall us anymore? Are we so desensitized to sins and the ways of the world and the things we're drawn into that we don't even see it for what it is anymore? We don't call it what it is. We're not broken over our sinfulness. Next, we see his confession of sin is a confession of shame and guilt and embarrassment because this is the things that sin lead us to, condemnation, shame, guilt, embarrassment. And again, Ezra doesn't shy away that he, that it was just these people that did this, but he says, no, he's owning it for the people and the community. And I think that's something we're missing desperately in this day and time. We just want to cast stones at everybody and say, hey man, if you get this, your stuff together, this would be a lot better place. But what if we see the brokenness and sinfulness of maybe the big C church that's happening maybe even in our day and time, and that instead of saying, well, I'm not like that part of the church, what if we just owned up to it and embraced it for our brothers and sisters and took it to the Lord in confession? And that we would, I mean, we're just so far removed, we're so personal and interpersonal in the Western world that this communal sense of guilt is just doesn't even exist anymore. So it's hard for us to even connect with this passage and see what Ezra's doing here, but how could we come alongside people in their sinfulness and confess it with them and repent with them and see restoration in relationships? That's what Ezra's trying to do. In his, intermer- in his interceding for the people, his hope is that there would be restoration for him and the people of God. So how can we come alongside others in their sin and not throw stones at them, but come alongside confessing with them, seeking God with them, seeking restoration with them? In verse seven, we see that the sins of the father are an ongoing problem. This isn't the first time that Israel's taken on other gods and done whatever they want. There's a whole book of the Bible called that. It's called Judges. That's a tough book. (laughs) The resounding theme of that book is the people did what was right in their own eyes. Why did the people do what was right in their own eyes? Because they had walked away from the Lord. Because they had walked away from his commandments. Because they had walked away from his covenant. Because they're mixing with the peoples of the land yet again. And they're drawn into idolatry. And doing things that are abominable to God. But when are they going to learn from the sins of their past, right? When are they going to learn? And when are they going to look at the past and say, okay, this is what brought them into sinfulness. So we don't need to make those next steps so that we don't end up in the same place. I think the same is true in our life, right? Do we learn from the sins of our past that are gonna impact our future? Do we we see where we are deceived? Do we see where we are drawn away from the Lord and that in our repentance we might turn to God seeking not to do these things yet again? Of course, there could be a fatal mistake that we would look at this story and say, silly Israelites, I've read this story. I know how it goes. Here you are again, you sad people. No, that would be a prideful, 
misreading of the scripture to not see ourselves that we are the Israelites. We are these people. We are the spiritually unfaithful. We are the spiritual adulterers. We've allowed things in our life, it might not look like theirs, but it is just as sinful and just as wrong and it draws us away from the Lord. And this should be a reminder to us that we are these people and that when we get caught in our sins, that we need to come to the Lord and call it sin. That we need to come to the Lord in confession. That we need to come and throw ourselves on the mercy seat of God and his goodness and his kindness. And so that's exactly what Ezra does for the people. He throws himself on the covenant kindness of God. And just like these people needed Ezra, we need an intermediary in our faith too. And that's what Jesus Christ comes to do. Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant. This is where the story is pointing to. We need a greater Ezra where we don't have to continually come with uh, sacrifices and different things for our sin, but that we have a mediator who, ca- who came and dealt with our sin once and for all. So Jesus Christ comes and he puts on flesh and blood. And what does he do? Walks and lives amongst the people to what? Identify with them. To say, I'm coming as your representative. I'm coming as your intermediary. I'm coming to do something about your unfaithfulness. I'm coming to do something about your sinfulness. And so he comes and he dwells amongst the people. I mean, a lot of people ask me, hey, Clay, why did Jesus have to get baptized? He wasn't a sinner. He didn't need a baptism of repentance that John the Baptist was doing. He does it to identify with us, to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus comes and fulfills the law that that Ezra and them couldn't keep. And by the way, that you and I couldn't keep either. And so Jesus comes and he perfectly fulfills the law, walking through all the things he would have as a child and a young adult and all these things until he takes his public ministry. I think a lot of times we overlook the perfect life of Christ that we need. Him in our place isn't just on the cross, it's in our lives. It's in the covenant keeping. And then this is what qualifies him to be the perfect sacrifice. That he goes, the spotless, sinless lamb who lived the life that we could not, takes it, our sin, our shame, our embarrassment, all these things on the cross for us. And he dies a real death. And then he's resurrected three days later because the grave can't hold him. Sin has no power over him. And he resurrects and is alive. And for those who have placed our faith and our trust in him, we can be forgiven of our sins. We can be, have the shame and the guilt and the condemnation of sin taken away in Jesus Christ and his work for us that we have placed our trust in him and not our own covenant keeping. This is what he offers us. Jesus is the intermediary between us and God forever. And guess what? That's one of the things he's still doing in heaven right now is interceding and pleading for us. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, um, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Thanks be to God. That is unbelievable. That the Lord in his kindness to us says, I don't want to leave you in your sinfulness. That the Lord in his kindness to us would say, even though you're unfaithful, I will never be unfaithful to you. That is, is that not unbelievable right now? Like, I'm not that good of a person to do that with people. You're not that good of a person to do that to people. But our God does that with us that he might restore us, that we might become this kind of people. A people of love, a people of grace, a people of forgiveness, a people who know that our covenant has been kept by the Lord who put it into place and that our hope and our trust and our salvation is in him. 
Notice that Ezra goes on from the confessing of the people's sins to actually focusing on the faithfulness of God. So he's focusing in this moment, he takes a turn from the confession of sin to say that God's been very faithful to them even in the face of their unfaithfulness. So we see that in verses seven through 15. He says, uh, yet they're in their sins, God's given them favor and, and kept a remnant. That he's given them a little bit of reviving even in this midst of slavery because they're still under Persian rule. Uh, but that he might brighten their eyes to be able to see that there's still hope, that there's still the seed of the gospel that's gonna come out of this if they would seek after him. It says that God's steadfast love has brought this reviving, even reviving the hearts of foreign kings. In verse nine, God's love is always the thing that will revive us, is continually coming back to the steadfast love and gospel of Jesus Christ is the thing that will renew us even in the midst of our sinfulness, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And then in verse 15, he recognizes that their guilt is so great and their sins are so great that there's nothing they can do about it. He said, did you catch that in verse 15? He says that, um, gosh, I'm on the wrong page. That would be helpful. Uh, Verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, and no one can stand because of this. That's how he ends the confession, is just throwing himself on the mercy seat of God, saying, we can't do this. We can't keep it. You've got to come and do something about this. And of course, we know that years later, he would come and do something definitively about it in Jesus Christ. And I think that we need to to learn something here. We see that In Ezra's confession, there is a confession of sin, but then there's also a turning to the faithfulness of God. Because if we stay just in a confession of sin and a brokenness and how sinful we really are, you know what that can do sometimes? If we only focus on that, we can have an over-focus on our sinfulness sometimes that just leaves us paralyzed, that just leaves us stuck, that just leaves us thinking, how could we ever, how could God ever love me with the things that I've done? How could I ever get out of this sinfulness? How can I break the cycle of sin? I'm, I'm the worst. And then we're stuck and we're paralyzed. That's one reaction to overfocusing on our sin and we just don't do anything about it. We're just stuck, we wallow in it, we wallow in condemnation and that's not where the Lord wants us. But then there's also another side of this that's really dangerous too. Sometimes we can look at our sinfulness and it's so great and what we think is, I can be my own mediator. I don't need Jesus. I can do this. I can clean myself up. I can white knuckle this and double down on this and make the right decisions and bring myself through this. And that's not a right reaction to our sin either. The right reaction is to be able to acknowledge our sinfulness for what it is, but then throw ourselves on the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, that he might renew us, that he might strengthen us, that he might restore us when we're not paralyzed in our sin. Even though we are sinners, yet we recognize in Christ we are saints. And we're trusting in his work on our behalf that that then motivates us and stirs us up by the love of God to actually live the life that he wants us to. Or we look at, man, I really, really want to save myself all the time, but I'm going to repent of that, and I'm going to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and not try to just save myself all the time. I'm going to throw myself in the mercy of God that he might renew me. And so Ezra's doing this in this passage. He's doing it for himself. He's doing it for the people, confessing their sin, yet throwing themselves on the mercy of God. The fourth thing is the people recognize their sin and that God's uh, kindness leads to repentance. We see a picture and a pattern of repentance right here at the beginning of Ezra 10. We see that when the people see Ezra 
as their representative, falling down before the house of the Lord, and he's weeping, and all these things that leads the people to see their sinfulness, and they're weeping, and then they're struggling. And so they recognize their sinfulness, and it leads to a godly sorrow. Notice that the people response is it, oh no, we've been found out. <laughs> I'm just so sad I got caught in my sin. I and mean, sometimes that's what we do, right? Sometimes people will confront us with our sin and we're like, and, and godly sorrow isn't the first thing that happens. Really, we're just sad that we got caught. And we're not really appalled by the sin. We're not really affected by the sin. We're just sad that somebody drug that sin out into the light. But true repentance starts with godly sorrow. We see it here for the people. They're weeping, they're crying. They can't believe they're in the spot again. And so they are turning to the Lord in the brokenness over their sin. The next we see in verse two that the sin leads to a confession and hope and says that, hey, even though we committed the sin, perhaps the, Lord, perhaps the Lord will still have hope on us. Perhaps he'll still extend his kindness to us. And then in the face of their sin, they have to deal with what happened. And so they come up with an action plan. And the action plan, as hard as it is, is a plan to preserve the seed of the gospel to preserve the covenant, to preserve a spiritual people and a representation to the Lord where they're not mixed with these other gods, that they're not going after other gods, and so they make this hard decision and action point towards their sin, and then they have to actually live in it and deal with it the other side of it. So we see this kind of pattern that we, when, we're, when our sin is drug out into the light by the exposure of God's law, that it leads us to a godly sorrow, that it leads us to confession, that it leads us to actually have to turn from our sin and to actually deal with it and the consequences thereof. And even in the midst of it, there can be hope. Even in the midst of it, there can be reviving in the Lord. You know, Martin Luther said that life is one of continual repentance, that repentance isn't a bad thing, that repentance is actually a gift. And that when we find ourselves yet again, though we don't want to be stuck in our sins and we're, and we're broken over our sin, that we would turn to the Lord in his grace and in his kindness and be revived. First uh, John uh, says this in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not within us. So when we find ourselves in that place again, in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, in our unfaithfulness, we need, the Lord wants us to come to him. He wants us to come to him because coming to him is the only place where we can find love, the only place where we can find acceptance, the only place we can find grace that where he can be restored in relationship with God and in relationship with people. He wants us to come to him and to repent and that our life would be one of continual repentance. So as I mentioned earlier, the book kind of ends here and we're left wondering, are these people gonna be faithful? Are they gonna keep the covenant? They've taken drastic measures to deal with their sinfulness to preserve a spiritual people for the Lord. What's gonna happen? Of course, we know they don't continue in this, that they'll break it yet again, that they'll be there yet again. But we know this is not where the story ends. The story doesn't end here in Ezra, but it continues on to the one who would be the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant, the one who would be the holy seed the one who would crush the head of the serpent forever, the promised one to Abraham who had been blessing to all the nations, one who would come from the line of David 
and sit on the throne of God's people forever, it's Jesus Christ. He comes and fulfills the covenant that you and I can't. He comes and deals with our sinfulness that you and I cannot. And that there's a time where we recognize this for the first time, right? We recognize our sinfulness, our inability to save ourselves, how much we desperately want to do it, but we can't do it, and that we turn to the Lord for the first time. Do you remember that time? Do you remember the time the Lord saved you and pulled you out of your sinfulness and your brokenness that first time? And then do you remember as a young Christian all of a sudden finding yourself there again in your brokenness, in your sinfulness, and you know what the Lord wants you to do? Come to him again. Come to him again. And 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 I could keep on doing this and do a really long sermon, but I'm not going to. But you get the point. The point is the Lord wants us to come and be renewed. He wants us to come in repentance and confession because the Lord has done something about it in Jesus Christ. That he on the cross said, it is finished. You know what it means in the Greek? It is finished. It means that the Lord has accomplished everything for our salvation and his life, death, and resurrection. And he desires that we would come to him because he's the fulfillment of this covenant. He's where this story is going. The people needed a greater intermediary than Ezra. Look at Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, through, uh, draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. Isn't that amazing? He can save to the uttermost. You know what that means? There's no sinfulness, no unfaithfulness, nothing that can separate you from the love of God if you're in Jesus Christ. That if you come to him in your brokenness, that you come to him confessing your sin, throwing yourself in the mercy of God, that he is there for you. And that right now in heaven, one of Jesus' jobs, if you will, is to intercede for the people. It says that he make, lives to make intercession for us. They needed someone to come fulfill their side of the covenant. Uh, Matthew five seventeen through 20 says this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever lacks one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same can be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches them and does them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what that's saying is there's no one righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven except through the man Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who on the cross took our shame, our guilt, and that in our trusting of him, we receive his righteousness. The righteousness that gets us into heaven is by the work, the person and work of Jesus Christ. That he is the one that we've got to trust in, not ourselves. But we also need, need new hearts. The reason the people can't accomplish this, the reason the people can't do this is because we have sinful hearts and that we need new hearts and we need spiritual renewal through the Spirit of God. In Ezekiel, it says this, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all countries and bring you back into the land. I will sprinkle you clean with water and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in a land that I've given your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. 
There it is again. How are we gonna be in a relationship where he is our God and we are his people? Through him sending his son and the likeness of sinful flesh, though without sin, though that he might give us new hearts in Jesus Christ, that he might put his spirit in us because we've accepted Christ and what he's done on our behalf. And then it says we'll be able to follow his laws and his decrees, comma, also, however imperfectly, we still do that. But the Lord is renewing us by his spirit to be able to follow after him and to live in the way he's called us to. They need someone to bring them back into a right relationship with God, that their marriage with God uh, would last forever. And we know that Jesus Christ has done this. That there's nothing, once we're in Christ, that can separate us from him. Uh, a verse of great encouragement to me is Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is amazing good news this morning. That wherever we find ourselves, there's nothing, if we are trusting in Christ and Him and Him alone for salvation, there's nothing that can separate us from Him. That even our own sinfulness can't separate us from Him because He's done something about it. That even our unfaithfulness can't do anything because He's going to be faithful to Himself. Another uh, verse that's really encouraging to me is 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot disown Himself. Another amazing piece of good news. God could have said to these people a long time ago, you can't do it. You're not worth it. I'm giving you up. But he doesn't. Because our God is a God of steadfast love, slow to anger, and that he's given these people years and years and years, hundreds of years to repent. And now he's given us a chance to repent yet again. To come to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's the first time or the millionth time, and say, I find my place in that sinfulness again. I'm gonna call sin what it is. I'm gonna throw myself on your mercy and your grace, and we're gonna deal with it together. This is where the stories go in. There is hope for Ezra and his people, and the hope's found in Jesus Christ. And the same is true for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you didn't leave us in our sinfulness, but you made a way to deal with it, that we could be in right relationship with you. That you dealt with sin once, once and for all. Our, our covenant unfaithfulness, you dealt with once and for all by sending your son to do it for us. And for that, we are incredibly thankful beyond words can measure. So Lord, would you renew us again today? Would you renew us in your covenant May we renew our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. May we call sin, sin. May we deal with it. And may we do that because your grace and your kindness leads us to repentance. That you want to restore us. That you want to renew us. In Christ's name, amen. So as Hayes and them lead us, I want you to just bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. I want you to think about some of the things we've talked about today as the band comes to lead us. Are we living in ways with God where he's not at the center? Are we giving ourselves over to other things or mixing it with our faith that are drawing us away from God? Another thing is, as we think about, is there areas in our life we have unrepentant sin and we're, we're scared to repent it? Or maybe we're scared to say it to God because we don't know what he's going to do with it. But we know in Jesus Christ and the verses we read that there is forgiveness, that there is renewal. So where, perhaps, is there unconfessed sin in our lives? And then in an action of repentance, where do we need to turn from sin and turn to trusting in the Lord in our lives? Where do we need to trust Jesus as our mediator and work in our lives 
to renew us in relationship with God and others. Lord, please do this in our hearts today. In Christ's name.